What an amazing, what an amazing week uh, to be able to spend with your uh, your children. In fact, a lot of y'all were spending the time with other people's children, just pouring into them. It took a hundred and sixty-one volunteers, what we call ministers at Grace Point Church, to be able to do all of this. There were some before part-time and full-time people. Uh, some just a few hours before getting everything ready. Some the night, a family night on Thursday night, cooking hot dogs and everything to get everyone ready for that night when they came back. And uh, and then there were those who gave the entire week. I was trying to add up the number of hours, and it's in the thousands of man hours when you when you calculate the adult counselors plus the forty something uh, junior counselors that were there uh, to be able to make this week happen. And let me just say this, and I'm not going to mention all of them. I'm not going to mention anybody by name, but I can count three people and families that sacrificed their vacation and said, listen, I'm not going to go to Disney World. I'm not going to do that. We are going to go to day camp and we're going to take our vacation and that's what we're going to do. And so it's pretty amazing that people, uh, again, I call them ministers, ministers of investment because they're investing into the future. If you were one of our workers, either either pre-camp, preparing for everything, pre-camp here that stay, uh, even Thursday night volunteering, helping cook, cook dogs or whatever else that we, we had going on that night. If you were a volunteer, would you please stand up if you're in the room? A lot of them I know are, are in the first service. Give these folks a hand. <clears throat> totally. Totally could not have done it without them. They made the week uh, investment. They, they invested in our kids, in our future, in, in, in the future that we will be sending these children to. And so, again, we don't call them volunteers. We call them ministers of investment because they are investing in our future. And you know about investments and you know about the cost of raising children and what all goes into that. I don't know if you have done the math on that like the government has. They literally annually study what it costs to raise children. Now they notice they never change our, our, our child deductions, all right? But they do measure how much it costs to raise children. And uh, this was an old study uh, years ago, so it's more than this today. But in 2002, it was cost $242,600 to raise a child to 18. And they've broken it down. They, they can tell you where, where, where it goes. And this is an urban family about $90,000 in housing over the course of that period of time. So food and transportation, and probably half that or more than half of that food is at teenagers, uh, uh, you know, years. And you can just break it right down to health care. And of course, we've got Obamacare now, so it's even cheaper or whatever. Uh, I thought it was funny. Anyway, uh, so it costs. There's a cost in raising children. We can see it that way, but I hope that we won't. I hope we understand it more as an investment. Just ask yourself this question. Do I see parenting as a cost of my time, my freedom, all the things I could do with that money, time, and whatever? Or do I really see what I'm doing as a parent as an investment? And a life principle for us would be to see it this way. Children are more than a cost we assume. They're an investment that we make. We're investing in the future. We're investing in tomorrow. 
We spend most of our lives preparing the next generation to live their lives. Think about that for a moment. We spend most of our lives preparing the next generation to live out their life. You spent 20, 25, 35 years raising in the process of raising children. Now, my brother, my, one of my younger brothers is like 43, and they're having their sixth child. They're in the process. And I to point my finger at him and say, you did it to yourself, all right? We have moved, Lori and I have moved way past uh, uh, that, that, that season of our life, but he is still living in, in, in that season. So we, we spend a lot of our life in this whole parenting gig that we're about. In fact, this past week was full of emotion for us. Just yesterday, our baby celebrated his 15th birthday. This past Wednesday, I loaded up, helped load up Jordan and uh, Tiernan in a U-Haul trailer to move back to Virginia, uh, where they're going to live. And that was, that was hard because, I mean, when basically everything that they have in life couldn't even fill up the back of a U-Haul. And, uh, and I'm sending my baby girl out with this guy and, and they're going to live and make a family and they're going to do all this. So there's, there's a lot of phases and feelings that I go on in this, in this whole process of investing in the next generation. When you think about it like this, this should make us think a little deeper about parenting. Our children are messengers we send to a world we will not see. Our children are messengers we send to a world we won't see. We'll get to see a little bit of it. We'll be able to grow them up a little bit. We may even get to see some grandchildren in the mix. But in the end, we won't see them, most likely, finish out their life. So we are sending messengers. We're sending messages into the future. Take your Bibles and let's look at, if we're looking at this historically, we're looking at it on the macro and the micro level, let's look at it from a historical point of view to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to take us to probably, now I could probably find other chapters, but I don't think I can find a chapter and a verse that has had more of a foundational impact over thousands and thousands and thousands of years in influencing parenting paradigm than the passage that we're going to look at today. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew language, it's called the Shema. And they literally refer to it, you talk to a devout Jew and you ask them about what is the Shema, they will be able to quote it to you chapter and verse. Because the Shema is what they have built on, used as the foundation. It was given to God, or it was given from God to Moses, to the people of Israel. And he said, as you go into the land that I'm going to send you, you need to, and this is the McDaniel paraphrase, you need to raise your children according to this paradigm. So that hopefully they, in their next generation, in the next generation, will do the same. And you've heard it from me. You've heard it from other people. The reality is, is that we're one generation away from our whole Christian faith being extinct. And if we don't take this approach with great intentionality, and we'll even find a word in that I think will emphasize the intentionality of parenting, then we will miss it. And there's no guarantees that, that we're just going to evolve into more and more following God. Romans chapter 1 points to the fact that we can easily fall away and, get, and God will give us over to our sins. We have to make sure we program, train 
training may be a better word than program because they're not robots. Train them, direct them, point them, steer them, coach them, mentor them, and exemplify for them the life that they should live. I want to talk about what these, our children, your children, my children need as they move out into the, in, into the future. Let's look at kind of the, the foundation for this. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land... In the land to which you are going over to possess it. Now, the only thing pivotal about the land was that was where they were going to finally establish themselves. They were a nomadic people. They had been living in Egypt for hundreds of years. They had been living in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. They had not yet planted themselves, but they were going to. And God said, hey, when you get there, You make sure you live like this according to these commandments, these statutes, these principles, these precepts. Now, some of us kind of push back on that. And I get it. We like our freedom. We don't like to be told what to do. We want to do it our own way. We want to make our own course. And you can do that and you can live with the results of that. Every time God tells us not to do something, it's not because he's trying to rob us of something. He's just saying, don't hurt yourself. And every time he says, do something, He's saying, go bless yourself. Listen, I, he, he says don't and he says do for reasons that are of his ultimate good and your ultimate good and that he is wanting us to be on his track because he has a plan that is beautiful for all of us and for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation after that because let's go to verse two. And you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, second generation, and your son's sons, third generation. Now, I think you can probably just add the son's son's sons and the son's 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 sons, and you can just keep on going with that. The whole idea is that, that we need to make sure that this generation doesn't drop the ball, passing it on to the next generation. And there's no perfect parents out there, and we're all going to mess up. But by keeping all these statutes and commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. See, God wants to bless us. God wants to see something beautiful in our families. He wants to see the next generation live brighter and taller and, sh- and shine brighter than, than this generation. And I hope that whatever generational sins that I have brought into my, my family, that my kids will correct it so that they can live better and I, they won't add to my generational sins. So what does, a, what does a child need? What do parents need as you go through there and unpack this? Uh, I think there's at least three necessities. Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but I think there's at least three building blocks that no matter what your family is, no matter what your background is, no matter what your culture is, no matter what the time and the season of life you're in, no matter what era you live in, that these three things are necessities for the next generation. One, jot it down, is that we need to exemplify the Christian life. Exemplify it. Starts with you and me. Don't live as this. Children, do as I say, not as I do. You and I both know that doesn't work. It didn't work for you. You saw the duplicity. You saw the hypocrisy in your parents, and you made a note of that. And whenever it came time to how you were going to live out your morals and values, you just 
lived it according to not how they said it, but how they lived it. And it's only natural and it's only the common way to go. The natural way to go. Here's a a study that was done. 71% of the children who went to church as a child with their parents continued into adulthood. In contrast, 75% of those who didn't attend church during childhood with their parents do not attend church as adults today. What is that saying? Listen, mom and dad can send me to church all day long. They can send me to youth camp. They can send me to church camp. They can send me to Adventure Point Day camp. And they can tell me how I'm supposed to live. But if they're not struggling in their own faith, if they're not walking in their own faith, if they're not worshiping God, if they're not finding value and place for God in their life, then guess what? When I grow up, I'm not either. And the thing is, here's the, here's the thing. Generation after generation, study after study shows this again and again and again and again and again. And most people get it when it's too late. They get it when the kids are gone and they start seeing themselves in the next generation in ways that are unhealthy. So how do we do this? How do we exemplify the faith? There's a couple of things. Jot them down. One is there must be a personally knowing God. You must personally know him as your God, okay? Not religion, not church membership, but do you personally know him? When you look at verse 4, you find the word, the Shema word mentioned, very first word. Hear, O Israel. That's the word Shema, to hear. Listen up, Israel. The Lord your God is one. The Lord our God is one. What we need to understand and what we need to ask ourselves the question is, who is my God? Now, I know we're in church and we're supposed to be Jesus and Jesus is always the answer and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 don't do that. Do an honest assessment of yourself. Because again, you know all the right things to say, but your children know the truth. The children see the truth. Children are shaping their values according to the way you're living your life. So let me ask you the question again. Who is your God? There's a lot of things begging for your attention. There's a, beg- a lot of things begging for your time. There's a lot of things begging for your money, beauty, fame, wealth, health, luxuries, relationships, status. The list, I can list another half a dozen. There's a number of things begging for you, wanting you to be a little idol in your life that you'll live your life for, for more and for stuff and to get it and to, to attain it. And, and if I could only. But what does he say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That clears the table. He is our God. Is he your God? Can you say you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there a deep relationship with him? And there's only one of him. There's not a multiplicity of gods. There's only one. Are you bowing your life to him? Also practically loving God. Personally knowing him, but also practically loving him. So it's, it's not just a religion, listen. Really, do you love him? Does your life show that you love him? What's the evidence that you love him? If your connection with God is relationship or is it religion? Which is it? Relationship or religion? Is it built on love or is it built on the law? Listen, whenever God gives his commandments and his statutes and his principles and all that kind of stuff, and you look at it, you go, oh, man, God's doing it to me again. 
You just want to take it. You don't want me to do this. You don't want me to enjoy life. Or do you just really see that he's really kind to guide you as your heavenly father? Is it built on laws? Is it built on love? Are you fully or partially devoted to him? Do you understand his precepts and principles and do you love them with delight or do you see them as a duty? Verse five and six, it says this. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I don't know if you realize, but you are made up of three parts. Paul mentions this in First Thessalonians. Jesus refers to this as the first and greatest commandment, if you remember that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what does he say right here? He's drawing this from Deuteronomy chapter 6 when we are told to love him with all of your heart. Now, what's your heart? And that's more than your organ. It's more than just pumping blood piece of you. It's your spiritual side that will live on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. When you die, according to the scriptures, you're going to live somewhere, hot or cold, okay? I'll leave it at that. All right, when you're there, what's living is the heart, the essence, the, the core of who you are. You love him with your heart. You love him with your soul. That's your mind. That's the internal emotions of who you are. In the Greek, it translates the word suke. Suke is where we get the English word psychology from. It's the mind. It's your emotions. It's, it's making up who, who you are. So you love him with your heart. That's your spiritual side. You love him with your, with your mind. That's your emotions, your attitudes, your, your, your thoughts. But you also love him with your might. That's your strength, your body. How does your body, how does your mind, how does everything that you are is, should be, ought to be about loving him. And you exemplify that. We, we love a lot of things, don't we, in this world? We love pizza, so we eat it. We love a movie, so we pay 10 bucks to go see it. We love people, so therefore we hold their hands. We spend time with them. We share our life with them. There's certain things you do. When you love something, you do something in response to that. How do you love God? What evidence out there is there? John 14, 15 says, If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey what I command. You will do what I say, not in drudgery, but in delight. Not because it's religion, because you're in a relationship with me. So is there a love relationship with him? I told you a story before. Bear with me if you remember it, because I think it, 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 it captures the point. A boy grew up in Germany, grew up in a Jewish home, was a pretty faithful Jewish family in a Jewish community, went to the synagogue, Practice Judaism. Dad, I think, sold insurance. I'm not 100%. He was in business. They moved to another town in Germany. And this town was not a Jewish community as much as it was a Lutheran community. So when they moved to this town, all of a sudden, Dad just autocratically made a decision across the board as a family. Said, hey, we're going to go to the Lutheran church now. There was something that registered in this young man's mind. It, it, It really didn't sink in as a right and proper thing to do, but dad's the leader, dad's the example, so dad, dad, so he asked dad, dad, why are we going to the Lutheran church whenever we are Jewish, and that's the way we grew up, and that's what we know, and, and the boy said this, said, it's good for business, that's what dad said, it's good for business, if we'll go to the Lutheran church. That registered lodged in that boy's mind. 
And he grows up and he moves out of Germany. He knew at that point that dad's religious faith was little more than a, a slight conscious decision. It really wasn't a heartfelt decision. The boy moves to England and he begins to become a writer. He wrote a bestseller. You might have heard of it. It's called The Communist Manifesto. His name is Karl Marx. He wrote a book and in that book he said, religion is the opium of the masses. Where did that come from? Because there was duplicity in the home, because there was hypocrisy in the home, because dad wasn't living up to the faith that he said that he had and he espoused. Listen, my friends, our kids see us. They feel it. They know it. We can disguise it, but they see through it. Are we genuinely, do we fully and completely love Jesus with all of our being? Number two, explain the Christian life. How can you explain your faith to others? Because, listen, the world is dumping into our, into our children's minds, our schools, our television, everything's out there. So we're going to have to be the ones as parents that really own whether or not our children have the faith. And you think, oh, Mike, I'm not very good at this. I don't, I'm not a good teacher. I can't explain it. Well, we need to put on our big boy pants. If we can have children, we got to figure out how to raise them, all right? If we can have children, we got to figure out how to pass on the faith. Listen, one of the best ways I've heard so many young believers tell me that they have learned so many Bible stories, and I'm not trying to sell anything here, but they just by going into our preschool classroom and teaching the children the Bible stories of the faith, they're learning the Bible stories. So if you don't know all the Bible and you want to start, start in the preschool department, all right? If you're a little advanced, go to the children's department and figure out where you belong on the spectrum there. But realizing that God's got truth and that we need to explain it and our children need to know it and it's not just going to happen by osmosis and they're not just going to get it by watching Sesame Street or any of the other latest shows that are out there. George Barna said this. He did, George Barn is a pollster. He studies the American culture in, in an amazing way. And he was studying the American culture and he was asking 13-year-olds, what shapes your morals and values? What were the influences of the past year caused you to change a position or a view on a significant moral or ethical issue? What did they say? The top three, song lyrics, movies, and the internet. Parents, we didn't make the top five. If we don't realize that we are swimming upstream being a parent and it's not going to be easy, then we need to wake up to it today and we need to own our role as parents. Now, that's exactly what he calls us to do in verse 7. So we're reading through the Shema. Verse 7 says this, you shall teach them. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You shall teach them diligently. So let's talk about teaching. What does that mean to teach them diligently? Because diligently speaks of intentionality. Diligently does not allow room for, space for passivity, parents. We gotta own this part. We gotta take it and we gotta see, okay, now how do I fit in to making sure the next generation gets it? Say, Mike, I've done my part. I found a good church. We have a good children's program. Thank you, and I'm glad you trust your children to us, but you realize that we only get them 1% of the, their life? Schools, they get them 18%. You get them 81%. And the reality is that only about one in 20 families actually in their homes 
have any sort of time of prayer, time of discussion, time of seeking God. And listen, let me say this to you as, as humbly as I can. I get it. I live in fear of it. I don't want to, and listen, my kids grow up in a preacher's home. We have a subculture called preacher's kids. They're deacon kids and preacher's kids, and they cause all the problems in the church, right? There's, there's a subculture that we're already swimming upstream in a very fast current. And I want my kids to own their faith. And I want my kids to get it. And I can't just send them to class and send them to Sunday school and send them to camp and think it's just going to happen. Also, he talked about talking about it. He said, teach them. But he also said, talk to them. Talking about it. In the Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19, Again, this is not something he just says once and goes on, one and done. He continually says it again and again in Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. Teach them to your children, talking about them whenever, wherever you are, and sitting in the home and walking in the street and talking about them uh, from time uh, time you get up in the morning until the time you fall uh, uh, until the time you uh, fall into bed at night. How is it that we can just make it a conversation? You know, look at it like this. Life is one great big teaching moment. Temptations, struggles, frustrations. I'm not talking about theirs, I'm talking about yours. What if you lived your life so vulnerable, so open, so free that you would say and you would share the struggles and the temptations that you're going with through yourself with them, maybe G-rated, okay, but to the point that they could process it through from a biblical worldview. That they could see you praying it through, seeking it and seeking counsel. And listen, we are in no way perfect parents, Lori and I. In no way do we even attempt to be that way. If you lived in our house, you would know very quickly how imperfect we are. Talk to our kids. They will tell you how imperfect we are. But there's a few things that we've tried to do And these are not in the scriptures, but I think they're applying this very principle. Jot them down if you want. One is think together. Think together. Get your children, help your children to think critically through life, critically through situations, critically through temptations. I love that this past several years, uh, Josh has been in the student ministry and been in the junior high ministry. And every week, whenever uh, a, a Bible study, or just about every week, whenever uh, they finish on Wednesday night, on Thursday morning or so, we'll get an email from, from Caleb Gabrelli. And it will tell us what they talked about. And it just gives us starting points. Not that we, okay, sit down now, Josh, and let's talk about what you just learned on Wednesday night. That doesn't work. It's now figuring out how we can weave it into the conversation and how we can have conversations about it and how we can ask questions and think together. Number two, read together. Find good material. Obviously, the Bible's a great place to start, but it's pretty daunting for a lot of people. So one thing that we used growing up when our kids were younger is we would sit down about 10, maybe 5 to 10 minutes before they'd walk out the door for school, and we would sit down and read a, a little chapter, one page of thing out of sticky situations. All right? There's lots of different volumes of them out there, but you can grab one, and it just basically goes through life's 
sticky situations that first graders, second graders, fifth graders, sixth graders go through. And then you're able to have a conversation around it and then able to read a scripture that pertains to it. And then we would all gather around and we'd pray together before they walk out the door. Another book, when they become teenagers, book, a couple of them. One is Every Young Man's Battle and then Every Young Woman's Battle. Great books. Uh, guys, there's an Every Man's Battle too that I recommend every man to read, all right, and to apply. But these are great because they give us conversations around all the hormones that come into a teenager. You know what a teenager is? A teenager is just, well, somebody said to me like this past week, uh, uh, you know, children are stupid. Teenagers are just stupid with hormones, which is a pretty dangerous combination when you bring those two things together. But what if you could have conversations around those hormones, around those temptations? Tell them about your struggles. Tell them about your victories. Let them see the humanity of yourself and how you're struggling to keep yourself on track. Pray together. A couple of nights ago, Josh climbed into bed. Lori's been traveling. We were laying there in bed and just hanging out. He was about to go to bed. I go to bed first. He goes to bed second. He's laying there and, and, and we're just talking. And so I just randomly said something. Tell me what you see yourself in four years. Because he's going into the ninth grade. Four, four years he'll be graduating, hopefully. And uh, so we're, we're, we're thinking four years down the road. So what does that look like for you? What do you anticipate? So he told me about him. He told me, we dreamed about everyone. We, Jordan's going to have a couple of kids, he said. I said, no, you know, all this kind of stuff. We have all these plans for all of our family members. And, uh, and then we landed and we said, okay, you know what? Before we go to bed, I want to pray for your next four years. I want to pray that the dreams that you have for your life, that God would help those to become reality. And so we hugged together, prayed together, and I sent him to bed. Look for opportunities to teach, opportunities to talk, opportunities to think, opportunities to pray together with your children. Number three, explore the Christian faith. Explore it in your life as you live it out because they're not going to get it automatically. In fact, the first response to your children as you start programming them as you start downloading the Christian faith is this right here, especially if they're older and they're not used to it. So if you go home and start making sweeping changes to the house, get ready for this, okay? So you're going to have to really kind of inch in on this and work your way into it, but then just start living it out, all right? Start living it out with them because this is what you've got to get. This is what they've got to get. It's got to go from here to here, and the distance between here and here is vast, and it doesn't happen just because you program it into them, feed it into the, into the top of the head. It doesn't happen that way. Josh McDowell, a great writer, writer, researcher, apologist, said this. He says, if we do not take our children's belief to conviction, we lose them to culture. So how do we do that? A couple things, as he mentions here. One is the Christian life is comprehensive. If you start compartmentalizing, this is church life and church talk and the way we do things at church and when the preacher comes around or when, when small groups in the house or something like that, and this is how we live. But when they leave, let me tell you, this is how it's going to be. If they start seeing that duplicity at all, 
then they're going to start shutting it down. And they're going to start creating corridors. They're going to start creating compartments. And we cannot let that. So whenever you see verse, uh, verse 7, uh, the latter part, and he says, talk about it then when you sit in your house and, and when you're walking by the way and, w- and when you lie down and when you rise up, what I want you to see is the comprehensive totality of the Christian faith where it interfaces with everything. If the way you drive doesn't affect, if your, the way your Christian faith doesn't affect how you drive, how you pay your taxes, how you treat your employees, then there's a disconnect and your children don't need to, they don't need to, it doesn't need to be there, let alone your children don't need to see it. Number two, the Christian life is practical. Now this, you understand me all the way through on this one. Verse eight, he said this. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. Okay, this is different. We have a modern day picture of a soldier, Israeli soldier, with the phylacteries around him where they took it literally, okay? Where literally in that little box on top of his head, there are actually a scroll of the Ten Commandments. Around his arm, he's got wrapped around his arm. Again, another phylactery and another copy of the Ten Commandments. They took it literally. Basically, what they was, my interpretation of Moses is this, is it wasn't just so much a literal act that you do as much as it's supposed to be outside of your life. Your faith is supposed to be outside of your life, not just inside. It's supposed to be in front of your face to where even in the peripheral vision of your life, all you see, you see life, you see truth. If I was to write it today, or obviously they didn't have glasses in the, in, in the times of the scriptures, I would say it's something like this. Put the scriptures in front of your face. Put it all over your life. It's not just a tattoo. But make it where it is lived out in front of you. And make sure your children understand how it is a very practical part of our everyday lives. Finally, the Christian life is secure. He mentions one other thing. Verse Nine, you shall write them again. What are the what, what's what's them? Them are the again the statutes, the commandments that he's given. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. You shall put them on your gates. Now there's a there's a Hebrew tradition that's still used to this day where it's called a mezuzah, and they they will literally mount it on their door face where you go into their homes. And if you go into a, into a, a strict faithful Jewish home, you'll still find right at the door face when you walk into the house. You'll find a copy of a mezuzah, and inside again, the mezuzah is a copy of the scriptures, very timely wrote and put in there. Now, what are they saying? Again, literal translation here, but what's he saying? He wants, Moses wants, God wants our homes to be built and established and founded and secure in truth. Your children are going to come from a crazy world, a messed up world a screwed up world. And they need to have a place when they walk in the door, it's a secure place. It's a place of truth. It's a place built on truth. It's a place that seeks God and loves God and there's no hypocrisy and we can be vulnerable and we can be transparent and we can be broken and we can rejoice when it's time to rejoice and we can mourn when it's time to mourn, but we are a safe place. 
Listen, we would want the kids in the neighborhood. We would rather the kids in the neighborhood come and play at our house than our kids go play at their house. Not that our house is better, not that we're better parents or anything like that, but here's the security blanket for us is that we knew there were standards in our house. We knew that there were certain movies that we didn't want our our kids to see in our house. And we didn't know what was happening in somebody else's house. And I want my home and I want my kids when they come to our home to know that this place is solid, it's grounded, it's biblical. We spend a whole lot of our time teaching our kids how to walk, how to run, how to do math, how to do this, how to, how, how, how. But sometimes I'm afraid we miss one other piece. It's not just the how, it's the where. Margaret Sangster is the story told of, of a lady who worked in a recreational center in a lower income area of a community and worked a lot of years there and she had seen a lot of kids come through, a lot of troubled kids come through. And there was one kid who came through one day and he was walking on crutches and his foot was turned out and he had a special brace and he couldn't play basketball or soccer or anything else with the other kids and Margaret was moved by this boy whenever she heard his story. He grew up in an impoverished home, and they didn't have any insurance and no help. And what had happened is at one point in his life, somebody had backed over his, over his foot and had broken it. And because he didn't have any insurance, because there was no extra special care, he was going to have to live the rest of his life like that. Well, Margaret took it upon herself in her moment of compassion. And she said, I'm going to do everything in my powers to get you help. So she did. <laughs> she contacted an orthopedic and he volunteered his time. She contacted the hospital and they volunteered the, 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 the operating room. She contacted the physical therapist and he volunteered himself. And it was just one after another, giving of themselves, building this case. And, and all of a sudden, this boy with the marred, broken foot was going to be able to walk again And it was because of one lady who poured into the situation. Story goes on because this was a story she was telling a local newspaper reporter as she was preparing for retirement. As she told the story, this newspaper reporter was blown away by it. Just amazed. I want to speak to that kid. You've done this for this kid, and he's walking, he's running, he he did all of this. And and how many years ago was this? This is beautiful. He's got to be pouring back into this community. He should be your successor. She wanted to talk to him. Margaret took a deep sigh, looked down and looked back up. She says, you can't. He's in prison right now. He's in prison after all you did? After all you worked with him? And she said this, Margaret said this to the reporter. I'm afraid I spent so much time teaching him how to walk that I never taught him where to walk. And the reality is, is you can teach your kids to be the best baseball player in the community. You can teach your kids to be really good students in school and there's nothing wrong with either one of those. But if we don't teach our children where to walk, where not to walk, then we could lose the next generation. And we are one generation away from losing them. 
and losing them to the faith. I want you to do something as we finish out today. We're going to end a little bit different. Some of y'all have children and you're going to jump into this activity immediately and know exactly what you're going to do. You can take that little sheet of paper that you got when you came in, walked over, find a little white space on it. And I want you to start writing out one sentence prayer. I don't want you to write a paragraph. I want you to write one sentence because I want you to remember this. For each child in your home, think about them, name them. One, this is the prayer for this person. They're a teenager. They're struggling with this. I'm going to pray very specifically for this child, for this need. Here it is, God. I'm lifting it up to you. Just start writing it. Do it one after another. Thoughts disentangle themselves when they move from your lips to your fingertips. It's an amazing process. Start writing it out. Start putting it down there. Some of you are like, oh, I don't have any children. My children are grown. What about praying for your grown children? What about praying for your nieces and your nephews? I, I doubt very seriously if anybody's going to turn away your prayers, okay? If you don't know who to pray for, pray for my kids, all right? They're PKs. But start writing it out. Some of y'all have struggled because you haven't been able to have kids. Again, what a blessing it would be for you to pray over the next generation of kids who don't have a father, who don't have a mother. Name them and start writing them out. Let me pray. Father, parenting is not for cowards. Lord, even as I'm praying, vocalizing a prayer right now, there are people in this room that are writing prayers out, typing prayers out for their children, for the next generation. And Lord, would you hear our prayers? Would you hear our cries? That not one single child should miss the prayers of a parent. And Lord, we don't know everything as parents, and we're not perfect, and we didn't come from perfect homes, but you're a perfect father. And if you can help us to be better parents, as being our Father, then Lord, help us now. And Lord, help the next generation not to miss what this generation can easily take for granted. Lord, hear our prayers. As we give ourselves to you, Lord, as we give our offerings to you, as we give our children to you, as we give our time to you, as we even give our service to you like this past week, Lord, Lord, as we give all of ourselves to you, loving you with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, because you are our Lord, may it be an example to our children. May our children literally see us even as we give our offerings. May they, may that create an impression upon them. May they see us as we're praying for them. May they interrupt us and hear our prayers. As we're teaching and walking with them, by the way, Lord, help us. As we're living it out and putting on 
Lord, in front of us, our faith, so that we can be steered by it, guided by it, led through life by it. Thank you, Lord. And we ask your blessings on everyone in this room, here and now, for the glory, for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name.